0: Happy, happy new year. I just wanted to let you know that I will be playing one more um, interview today that I played in the past because I think you would really enjoy it. And I wanted to re-air it. And then after that, we will be starting with brand new lineup of really exciting interviews. So thank you for listening. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today I I don't I don't know if I've ever been as excited as I am today to have this amazing guest on my show. Dr. Bruce Grayson. Dr. Grayson is professional emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which is also called IONS, and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. A distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, he has received national awards for his medical research. Dr. Grayson is the world's leading expert on near-death experiences. And his, his research reveals, talks about his journey, or he's going to tell us about his journey towards rethinking the nature of death, life, and the continuity of consciousness. Welcome to the program, Bruce. Oh,
1: thank you, Marla. I'm so oh, happy to be here you with Bruce? you. Sure, sure. <laughs> that is my name. Yeah,
0: when, Yeah, when I wanted to be sure of that. So so let's just, just jump right in. I know, um, let's talk about the beginning. I know your father was... A chemist yes, and yes. and a very um, you know so a very materialist background that you grew up in. So mm. how did how did this begin?
1: Well, uh, as you said, I was I was raised in a materialist household, a very scientific household, and as far as we knew, the physical world was all there was. We never had any talk about spirituality or religion or anything like that. So it just wasn't part of my world. Mm-hmm. So I went through. Um, college and medical school with that mindset that, you know, when you die, that's the end. And I was fine with us. That's the way life was. And then as I was beginning my psychiatric training, just a few weeks into it, I was called to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. And I was in the cafeteria having dinner when the, the pager went off on my belt and it kind of startled me and I dropped some spaghetti and spilled some on my tie, tried to clean it off. And I couldn't. So I just put on a white lab coat over it so I wouldn't show, and I went down to see the patient, and she was completely unconscious. I I could not arouse her no matter what I did. Uh, So fortunately, her roommate, who had brought her in, was waiting to see me down the hall at another room. So I went to talk to the roommate for about uh, 15, 20 minutes, got some background about the patient, what was going on in her life, and so forth. Uh, And that was was a very hot uh, summer afternoon, evening in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, So I had unbuttoned my lab coat so I wouldn't sweat so much and expose the the stain for a little while, about 10 minutes. And then when I said goodbye to her, I realized it was showing. I covered it up again quickly. Went back to see the patient and she was still unconscious. So we arranged for her to be admitted to the intensive care unit uh, overnight. And then I saw her the next morning after she had awakened. And when I saw her, she was very, very drowsy. She could barely open her eyes. So I went in the room and I introduced myself and she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that kind of startled me. So I said, uh, I'm surprised I thought you were out cold when I saw you last night. And then she opened her eyes for the first time, looked at me and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Well, that that just made no sense to me at all. The only way that could have happened is she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And as far as I could tell, I was my body. How could that have happened? So she sensed my confusion and then proceeded to tell me about the conversation I had with my roommate, with her roommate rather, the questions I asked, the answers the roommate gave, where we were sitting, what we were wearing. And finally, she told me about the stain on my tie. I was just blown away. I couldn't imagine how this could be, um, but you know, I realized I was there to do a job. I had to help her, you know, I wasn't there to deal with my confusion, but, but with hers. So I. Pulled it together and, and tried to deal with her. And as the next few days evolved, I, was a I just couldn't. I tried to tell myself somebody was playing a trick on me. The nurses were you know, trying to fool this young green intern. I just couldn't imagine how it happened. So I just pushed it out of my mind for several years. And then about five years later, uh, Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described what they were like. And I read this, and actually, Raymond was working with me there in Virginia. I talked with him about it, and I realized for the first time that what this patient had told me was not just one isolated event, but part of a huge phenomenon. Uh, It still made no sense to me, but I realized then I've got to study this. You know, as a scientist, if you don't understand something, you have to go toward it and, and try to understand it. So I started trying to collect cases and make some sense out of it all. And here I am, 50 years later, still trying to make sense out of it.
0: Wow. I've had Raymond on the on the show, I think hmm. four times now. Ah. <laughs> He's become a very good friend. Yes. And yeah, his his work is is just amazing. So just um you were an intern when this happened. Just curious, yes. did you? Did you confide in anyone? I did or? not.
1: I did not. Uh, I, I didn't know what it was. I thought
0: yeah.
1: they may think I'm crazy. They may think I'm gullible. I did, I was embarrassed. I just right. didn't want to deal with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's understandable. Yeah. So uh, we've had a lot of people on this show talk about NDEs, but could you um, just briefly define um, what an, an NDE is? NDE is and
1: its features. Yeah, it's it's a very profound experience that a lot of people have when they are close to death or sometimes when they're pronounced dead. That includes unusual features like a sense of leaving the physical body, uh, having an overwhelming sense of peace and well-being, sometimes watching the physical body from above, and then sometimes leaving this physical realm and going to some other type of dimension or realm where they encounter other beings, sometimes deceased loved ones, sometimes a deity. They may relive their entire lives and at some point come to a decision to return to life or are sent back to life um, and then find themselves back in their bodies, uh, trying to make sense of what's go, what, what, what that was like, what happened. Uh, for me as a psychiatrist, uh, some of the most profound aspects of it are the after effects of the way it changes people forever.
0: And I want to talk about that, but before we do, I, I know because I've seen you speak a few times and I've seen you get teary a few <laughs> times and I know it's the emotion, I mean, just to be able to say, so this is, these are the, you know, features of an NDE, but just the emotion that yeah. comes out and what it brings out in you. Can you can you just talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, yeah. My wife hates that. Uh
0: <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> a lot
1: a lot of the people that I that I uh, talk about, the near death experiences, have become friends over the years, and their stories are very moving and they're very personal and they're very touching to me. Um, and their lives have sometimes been upended because of the near death experience. And that's very uh, emotional also, how they've had to readjust their whole lives because of this experience.
0: Wow. So let's talk about the transformation Mm -hmm. a little bit and um, talk about that. And then if you could share a a few stories.
1: Sure, sure. Well, typically, people come back from a near-death experience with the greater sense of not necessarily religion, but spirituality, a sense of being connected to other people, to the universe, to the divine. And they feel that in their lives as they go on. They feel the sense of of divine in their lives as they go on. They become much more concerned about caring and about compassion. They become much more altruistic in their behavior. Um, They become much less concerned with things of this world, material possessions, power, prestige, fame, competition, um, and that that sounds like a wonderful thing, but it can create havoc in their lives if their lives were not consistent with that beforehand. Um, for example, I knew one fellow who was a, a career uh, Marine. Um, he had been a bully in high school, was a real macho guy, and his lifelong goal was to be in the Marines. And he was in the Marines and he was a Sergeant in Vietnam. And he was shot in the chest and had shrapnel throughout his lungs. Um, he was Aravac to a hospital in the Philippines where he had an operation. And during the operation, he had a near death experience. And when he came back from that, he was full of the typical sense of spirituality, of being connected with other people. And when he was rehabbed and then sent back into the jungle, he found that he could no longer function as a Marine. He couldn't shoot somebody. Mm-hmm. That just is such so, an abhorrent, abhorrent idea to him that he, he couldn't do it. So he had to leave the Marines, which had been his lifelong goal, came back to the States and eventually retrained to be a medical technician. I've heard similar stories from uh, police officers who found they couldn't do that job after a near-death experience. I've heard from, um, people who were cutthroat businessmen who came back from a near-death experience, thinking that getting ahead at someone else's expense makes no sense at all, that we're all in this together, that uh, hurting other people ends up hurting yourself, and they either left the business or changed entirely how they did the business and treated their customers and their employees much more compassionately.
0: That's so beautiful, and I mean, can you think of anything else that you've seen as a psychi- psychiatrist that that transforms a person like that?
1: No, you know, we we make our livings trying to help people change their lives. And it's difficult work, and it takes a lot of time, and you make incremental changes. And here you've got an experience that, in a matter of seconds, totally transforms their attitudes, beliefs, values, and behavior, and it doesn't go away. I've talked to the people people in their 90s who had the experience as children, and as they say, it's like it happened yesterday. I've never gone back to the way I was before.
0: Mm. And I know that you also talk about how it's – outside of time.
1: Yes, yes. And
0: can you just, and I love the Albert Einstein story. <laughs> could, you, could you tell that?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of near-death experiences say that that time did not exist in the other realm, uh, that they just didn't have a sense of time, uh, which is kind of a paradox when they tell it because they they tell the story as if this happened and then this happened and this, this happened.
0: Right.
1: And I asked them, how can you have a sequence of events if there's no time, and they just shrug and say, well, when I tucked you out of here, it's a paradox. But on the other side, it wasn't a paradox at all. Everything was happening at once and in a sequence. So the Einstein story, uh, there was a geologist in Switzerland, Albert von St. Gallenheim, who had fallen climbing the Alps, and he had an incredible near-death experience as he was falling. It took like six seconds to fall down to the bottom of the mountain and he was repeatedly crashing against the rocks, getting bloodier and bloodier. And as he was doing this, he had this incredible sense of bliss. And he said, he wrote later about this saying that when I watch people fall, it's terrifying, but when I myself was falling, it was wonderful. I was watching my body getting bloodier and I didn't feel a thing. It was wonderful. And he also had a very elaborate life review in which he lived his whole life beforehand and then also into the future thinking about the classes he had to teach. He was a professor, the people he would leave behind. He had time to think whether I should take my glasses off as I'm falling so I won't crash, break them when I die, and so forth. Um, And he said that the faster I fell, the slower time got. He was so impressed by this experience that he started asking other mountain climbers, and he quickly collected 30 other cases just like his. And he published these in the yearbook of the Swiss Alpine Club in 1892, the first collection we have of near-death experiences. Of course, they didn't have a name for it back then. But he was also so taken by this experience that he told all his geology classes about this experience. And back in the late 1890s, He had a teenager in his class named Albert Einstein, and he told this class about his near-death experience, including that as you go faster and faster, time gets slower and slower. And Einstein was so taken with Heim that he actually took a second geology class with him and heard the story again. And It was about 15, 20 years later when Einstein wrote his theory of relativity, in which he said that the faster you go, the slower time gets. So did Heim's NDE uh, influence Einstein? You know, we don't know. He never said that, but it's certainly possible.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's such a great, great story. So let's go in a bit of a different direction, talk about how do we know that they're real and and not Mm. lack of oxygen, drug-induced hallucination, all these, you know, physical, you know, things that we try to psychosis, even that we try to say that it's because of that. Can you um, chat about that?
1: Sure. Well, as I said, I started out as a materialist and I was trained in medicine. So when I first encountered these strange things, I tried to explain them with what I knew, my physiological background. And we thought of lots of different explanations, lack of oxygen, drugs given to people as they're approaching death. Um, Chemicals being produced in the brain under stress, like endorphins, a variety of things. And we some of these we were able to test. For example, we were able to measure the amount of oxygen getting to people's brains as they're approaching death. And we found that those who had near-death experiences actually had more oxygen going to the brains than those who didn't. Likewise, people who were given drugs tend to have fewer near-death experiences than those who weren't getting drugs. So, we're able to, to rule out most of these simplistic explanations, and we just didn't have one that was left. That doesn't mean we never will, but we don't have one at this point. Um, however, there are ways we can look at whether an experience is real or not. For example, hallucinations and delusions that come with psychosis are very different from near death experiences in a variety of ways, they tend to diminish people's lives. They make people more fearful, more introverted, more more afraid. Um, They are uh, idiosyncratic. They are inconsistent from one person to another. Uh, When it's over, people recognize that they were not real, and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to share it with other people. On the other hand, near-death experiences are very calm and pleasant and reassuring, and people feel they enrich their lives, not diminish them. They are remembered uh, vividly for decades afterwards. They don't fade, as hallucinations do. They're very consistent from person to person. Um, And they're remembered as being more real than this reality. They say they're hyper real. In addition to that, um, there has been a a scale that was developed to measure whether memories are memories of real events or memories of imagined events. And we gave this scale to near-death experiencers and we asked them to rate their near-death experience, their memories of the near-death experience, with their memories of another dramatic event from their lives at the same time, and from an imagined event that didn't happen at the time. For example, if they were afraid something was going to happen, but it didn't, or they were hoping something would happen, and it didn't. And what we found was that the memories of the near-death experience looked like the memories of real experiences and not like the memories of false experiences. In fact, they looked more real than the memories of real experiences, just like near-death experiences say. They're more real than real.
0: And I know Jan Holden's um, research also. Well, let's talk about that.
1: Sure, sure. You know, a lot of people say they left their bodies and looked down at the body below and can describe it vividly. And sometimes they describe things that were very unexpected. Um, that we can then verify by talking to other people in the room. Let me give you an example of that from my experience. This is a, a middle-aged uh, uh, man who was admitted to the hospital with acute chest pain, and he was seen in the emergency room and immediately rushed to the operating room for a quadruple bypass surgery. And in the middle of this operation, he said he left his body and he was looking down and he saw the surgeon flapping his arms and when i heard that i thought this has got to be hallucination you know i, I had been a, a doctor for 30 years at that time i've never heard of anyone doing that you don't see doctors on tv doing that you know yeah, surgeons are very serious especially in the middle of an operation but he insisted that this was really what happened so uh in the next few days with his permission i talked to the surgeon and the surgeon acknowledged yes that was actually right that he had developed this unique habit that he never saw anyone else do, that he lets his assistants start the operation while he puts on his sterile gown and gloves, and then he goes into the operating room and he watches them, and he doesn't want to touch anything that's not in the sterile field, so he puts his palms flat against his chest where he knows they won't touch anything. And he points things out to his assistants with his elbows, so he won't touch anything with his fingers. And he demonstrated to me, and it's just like Al said, you know, it's like he was trying to fly. There was no way he could have known about that, and yet he did. Uh, You mentioned Jan Holden's research. She actually uh, looked at uh, about 100 different cases that have been published in the literature about near-death experiences where people have left their bodies and described things that could be corroborated potentially by another person. And in 92% of these cases, the description was entirely accurate. In 6%, there were some errors and only 1% was totally wrong. So it's not an occasional experience that's accurate. It's the vast majority that are accurate. Right. And hallucinations don't produce accurate perceptions.
0: And as you say, the number is not really that important, even if it had happened right. to one. Exactly. It's worth, worth looking at. One story that I just, matter of fact, I was telling my daughter the story on the way to the airport today. <laughs> Um, And it's about the young nurse with the
1: red card. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people in a near-death experience will encounter deceased loved ones. Mm -hmm. And these are easily dismissed by debunkers as wishful thinking. You know, you think you're going to die, so of course you want to see deceased loved ones, so you imagine meeting them. And that may be an explanation for some of these cases. But there are a number of cases in which the person saw someone who was who had died, who no one knew had died, which kind of takes expectation off the table. Right. And we actually have cases that's going back to ancient Rome. Pliny the Elder wrote about a case like this in the first century. This one case that, that I knew was a fellow who, as when he was 25, he was admitted to the hospital with severe pneumonia and he had repeated respiratory arrests where he couldn't breathe. And his primary nurse was with him every day, was about his age, And one day she told him she was gonna be taking a long weekend off and there'd be other nurses substituting for her. So he wished her well and sent her on her way. And while she was gone over that weekend, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that arrest, he had a near-death experience. And he found himself in a beautiful pastoral scene. And there he saw this nurse, Anita, walking towards him. He does a double take and says, Anita, what are you you doing here? And she said, you can't stay here. You need to go back to your body. And I want you to tell my parents that I love them very much. And I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned and walked away and she was gone. When he later woke up in his hospital bed, he remembered this vividly. And the next nurse who walked into his room, he excitedly tried to tell her about it and she wouldn't hear about it. She walked out of the room very upset. It turned out that this nurse of his had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents surprised her for her birthday with a red MGB. She got very excited, jumped in the car, took off down a hill, lost control, crashed into a telephone pole and died instantly, not too long before his near-death experience. Now there's no way he could have expected her to die or wanted to see her, and certainly, in a way, he could have known how she died, and yet he did. Wow.
0: Those stories are just, and it's not as if you went out looking for these stories. Right. You know, that... <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you wanted. To, you probably were very happy being a materialist a scientist, <laughs> which brings us, bring us to the point. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but why? Okay, there, there are. Tens of millions of these of these experiences yes. that, that people are finally talking about—I think that's just in this country. And to me, it's so exciting. Why? Why are? Pe- why do you think people are so resistant to to hearing this information and and really digging into the research themselves? Because. You know, few do unless unless mm. there's you know a yeah. tragedy usually or something.
1: Well, I, I grew up with that materialist mindset, and I understand it. It's a very comforting mindset. Mm. If everything is in the physical world that you can explain by laws of physics, uh, the world is very predictable, and it's a safe world. But if you open up to non-physical entities and beings and forces. Um, who knows what the limits are of what they can do, and what they can't do and how they may affect us. It's, that can be very frightening for someone who doesn't know anything about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so I can see how it's very appealing to say, no, those aren't real. Those are just your imagination. Uh, you know, people are making things up and they're fooling you um, or they're delusional. They think it's real, but it really isn't. And I understand that.
0: Um, right. Do people that are really religious, um, all all different kinds of religion before they're, or or atheists, before they're NDE, do they come back more religious or more spiritual?
1: They They generally come back more spiritual. There are certainly some who go back to their own religion and find it very comforting, but the vast majority come back feeling that all religions are basically the same, and they feel equally at home in any church or synagogue or mosque or just even out in nature they feel they can commune with god anywhere they enjoy the the ritual and the music uh, of the service but they don't like particularly the dogma of the church right. uh, they feel like they connect directly with the divine and don't need a priest to be the intermediary and so forth
0: yes that makes sense So speaking of that, I'd like to talk about the life review because I feel like that's one of the one of those things also that people would get excited about because it helps you live your life differently. Yes. And so um, let's talk a little bit about that and maybe you can tell us about Tom Sawyer.
1: Sure, sure. About 30 or 40% of people who have a near-death experience will describe a life review in which their entire life usually flashes before their eyes. Uh, And about 80% of those um, will relive the events in their lives not only from their own perspective, but from the perspective of other people as well. And Tom Soria was a fellow who in his 30s was working underneath a truck in his driveway and it fell and crushed his chest. And he had a near-death experience at that point and remembered his entire life and there were several events that he talked about in which he experienced them from other people's uh, perspectives as well and the one that was uh, most incredible to me was he was uh, a, a teenager uh, driving his truck down the street and a drunk man wandered out in front of his truck and tom jammed on the brakes and he was furious uh, because the guy almost dented his truck um, So he stops the truck and rolls down the window and starts yelling at the man. And the man being quite intoxicated reached his hand inside the the window and slapped Tom across the face. Uh, That was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he gets out of the truck and starts beating the man mercilessly Mm -hmm. and leaves him a bloody mess on the median strip, gets back in the car and, and drives off. Well, when he had his life review, He relived this not only through his own eyes, but through the eyes of the the man as well. And he felt his own rage and adrenaline rush. Uh, And then he felt the man's uh, humiliation, embarrassment at being beaten up by this young kid. He felt every one of Tom's 32 blows with his fist against the guy's face. He felt his nose getting bloody, his teeth going through his lower lip. And Tom came back from that realizing that we're all in this together and what you do to somebody else you do to yourself you feel it just as much as they do and when you help someone you help yourself when you hurt them you hurt yourself and he said as so many near-death experiences do that now the golden rule is no longer just a a guideline to go by but it's actually a law of nature they realize this is the way it is i live and you can't get around it so right. they tend to live their life according to that afterwards. Uh, it, it becomes unthinkable then to really hurt somebody. Um, and they become much more altruistic, much more compassionate.
0: So profound that it's a part of nature. It's not a moral thing yes. or you know, kind of a lesson to learn. It it just is.
1: Right. It's not a, not a rule that we made up. It's yes. a part of the way the universe works.
0: So how, how has this impacted your life, all of these stories and this yeah. awakening, and how, how has your life changed?
1: Well, it's, of course, it's changed a great deal. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, I went into this thinking that science had all the answers, and, and now I, I realize science doesn't even have all the, well, even have all the good questions. Um, but there are just some questions that can't be answered by physical science. Uh, we may eventually expand science to be able to handle some of the other uh the more spiritual questions as well but at this point uh we don't have that ability so we have to say that there's some questions that we're not going to get answers to um and that's okay with me now it didn't used to be i used to not be happy with not having the i needed to get all the answers and now it's fine we're not going to get all the answers um i kind of think that you know, if these guys are right, the near-death experiences that when I die, I may have all the answers, but I don't need them now. Right. Um, Almost every near-death experiencer comes back saying they are no longer afraid of dying, that death is nothing to be afraid of. And I've kind of absorbed a lot of that. You can't talk to thousands of these people without absorbing some of this. Um, I can't say that I was afraid of death before this, because I never really thought about death before this. It just you know when you die that's the end and what's there to be afraid of um but now i kind of think that uh, there is something waiting for us after we die and it's not something to be afraid of you know as a psychiatrist when i first heard near death experiences say that uh death is something that's wonderful and not to be afraid of i was worried that if we word word that gets out that's going to make people suicidal right because i had dealt with a lot of people who were thinking about taking their lives, but were deterred because they were afraid of what might happen if they do that. So I did a study of people who were admitted to my hospital with a suicide attempt. And I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of that suicide attempt with those who didn't. And what we found was that those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal afterwards than those who didn't have an NDE, which seemed kind of counterintuitive to me. Mm -hmm. And I asked them about it. And they told me a lot of different things um, that they now feel part of something greater than themselves. That they now realize that the problems they have are just uh, trivial things, not part, not really important. But the main thing they said was that when you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living. If you're not afraid of losing your life, you're not afraid of taking chances of diving with jumping with both feet and living life to the fullest. And life becomes much more enjoyable and much more fulfilling. Um, so I think that's the main reason why these people became less suicidal after the NDE. Right.
0: Wow. And do you think that scientists are beginning to open up to this, to this information?
1: I do, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I've seen it myself over the last half century I've been doing this. When we first started talking at national conferences, American Medical Association conferences in the 1980s about near-death experiences, there would be just a polite silence in the audience. And I'm sure many people thought we were making it up or something. And now when we talk about it at conferences, we have people standing up from the audience saying, let me tell you about my NDE. These are doctors saying this, you know, so it's much more acceptable now. It's still um, not, people don't accept what, what they're about, what, what causes them but doctors recognize that these are important experiences that their patients are having, and they really affect their patients' lives. Whether they think they are spiritual events or physical events, they know that they're important to the patients and therefore they wanna know about them. Mm -hmm. But beyond my experience, there have been some studies now done of surveys of scientists in different countries, in Scotland, in Belgium, in Brazil. And what they find is that about half of the scientists in these different countries will say that The brain and the mind are not the same thing, which is the opposite of what we were taught in medical school, that the mind is what the brain does, and all our thoughts and feelings are created by the brain, and that does not seem to be true in the near-death experience. Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. So I know that the University of Virginia, where you are, um, you've also done some other work that that is is similar, talking about um, continuity of of consciousness and also before we came into this earthly realm and children talking about past lives. Right. So could you elaborate on that?
1: Sure, we have this group that's called the Division of Perceptual Studies that was founded more than 50 years ago uh, to study these mind-brain anomalies that may suggest some part of us survives bodily death. And we've studied a wide variety of things. I've been studying near-death experiences. Um, Ian Stevenson and now Jim Tucker have been studied young children, two, three, four years old who claim to remember a past life. And in many cases, we're able to go back and, and find the family of the people they claim to have been. And the family will corroborate a lot of the things that the children say, and that the children can identify people and places from the previous life. We've also study mediumship, um, deep paranormal experiences people have under under meditation. Um, We have now a state of the art neuroimaging lab, where we can study what's going on in the brains of people when they claim to leave their bodies or do psychic healing, and so forth. Um, So we have a variety of ways we can study these questions about whether the mind and the brain are the same thing, and whether some part of the mind may survive bodily death.
0: What do you think now with all of the research coming in?
1: Um, I think there is something after death. I think the mind is not what the brain does. I think they are separate. They obviously are connected during life, during normal life, I should say, uh, because under unusual circumstances like a near-death experience, when we may still be alive, but the brain is not functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. Right. Um, And there are other circumstances like that. I was going to mention um, something called terminal lucidity. when People who have end-stage dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, and they haven't been able to recognize family for a long, long time, not able to communicate, and their brains are just deteriorating. um, In the hours or sometimes days before they die, they suddenly become completely lucid again, and they recognize family and carry on coherent conversations, and the family may get very excited thinking they're recovering, but they're not. You don't recover from a brain like that and then they die. And there's no medical explanation for that. But it's possible that maybe somehow, when the brain deteriorates sufficiently, it loosens its its hold on the mind and, it, and then function fully again.
0: Right.
1: Likewise, we've done some neuroimaging studies with psychedelic trips in the last decade. But we used to think that the way psychedelics work is by stimulating the brain to hallucinate, and you should see more activity in certain parts of the brain, if that's true. But what these studies have shown both in this country and in the UK is that the more elaborate mystical experiences with psychedelic drugs associated with a decrease in activity in the brain, both from the sheer amount of electrical activity and to the connection between different parts of the brain. So all these pieces of evidence seem to suggest that under unusual circumstances, the mind and the brain can dissociate and function separately.
0: And the implications of, I don't think anyone wants to experiment with near-death experiences, but with psychedelics, I shouldn't say experiment. That's not a good word. You can scratch that. Um, But with psychedelics, with Johns Hopkins research and some of the other, it's with one dose, it's changing people's lives. I had Marjorie Woolcott on the show. Like, well, she hasn't. Yeah, I think she's aired. And she was talking about people who had terminal cancer yes. and they did one dose of psilocybin and it changed their world they weren't yes. careful of that and so that research is very exciting I think it's going to change the world yeah, yeah. I really do yeah
1: let me let me say one thing about that research though
0: mm-hmm. it's not
1: just giving someone a pill and saying go home and take this and then tell me right. what happens There, in the lab with beautiful music and someone to be there with low lights and someone to be there and sort of be there with them, so it's a very uh, safe place to do this in. Um, right.
0: Yes, it's not just going out to a party. No, it's very no. much med- <laughs> medically. Yes yes, yes. yes. And in terms of um, different cultures, what have you found about NDEs in other cultures? How are they different? How are they as- have the yeah. same?
1: what we see is that the basic phenomena of the near-death experience, the lights and the, uh, the sense of love and so forth are the same from every culture that we've looked at so far. Um, Buddhist, Hindu cultures, Muslim countries, um, Christian, Jewish uh, cultures that don't have um, these religions. Uh, back in the uh, 17th century, uh, French fur trappers were collecting these cases from the Chippewa Indians, and they were just like the ones we have now. And we have cases from ancient Greece and Rome that are just like the ones we hear now. However, most new death experiences will start their NDE account by saying, Well, there aren't any words to describe what happened to me. And we say, Great, you know, tell me about it. You know, so we we're, we're telling them, we want you to distort it by putting it into words. And because these things aren't describable they tend to use metaphors to describe a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And the metaphors come from their culture and from their religion. So people will describe this warm, loving being of light all over the world. And here in the US, we may say that was God, or that was Christ, whereas people from Hindu and Buddhist cultures will not use those terms. So the way you describe these things will differ from culture to culture, but the basic thing you're describing is the same.
0: Mm So what do you think happens to the brain during this? I know you've touched on it a little bit about shutting down but yeah. can you talk about about the brain a little bit
1: yeah yeah there's, there's been this thought that the brain and the mind are, are separate for thousands of years. Hippocrates 2,000 years ago wrote that the brain is the messenger or the interpreter of the mind and that's been a minority opinion in, among scientists for, for centuries now and different generations have used different models based on their current technology to describe this. Uh, The one that's used most commonly now is the sense of a a filter, that the brain is a filter for the mind. And a model is like um, a radio tuner. There are thousands of of radio stations out there. If you tried to listen to all of them at once, you wouldn't be able to hear anything. So you use the tuner to zero in on one particular station and filter out all the others. And the idea is that, the brain receives all these thoughts from the mind, selects the ones that are relevant and filters out the others. And why would this be? Well, the brain, like all our other organs evolved as a physical organ to help us survive in the physical world. You know, your eyes don't see the entire electromagnetic spectrum. It just lets in the ones that are relevant to our survival and filters out all the ultraviolet and infrared that aren't important to us and the brain does likewise. Your mind may be full of uh, thoughts about the divine and about deceased loved ones. Those aren't important to finding food and shelter and a mate, so the brain filters those out and just lets in those thoughts that are important to surviving in the physical world. And what may happen in near-death experiences and psychedelic drugs and temporal lucidity is that as the brain starts shutting down, the filtering function fails. Right. And more stuff comes in, letting all this other wonderful spiritual stuff manifest.
0: It's interesting. You can see that in nature, too. I mean, look at look at dogs and even some of the animals that see colors that we can't see right, right. and all, all the research out on that. And I also know that... Um, children many children on the autism spectrum Mm. and children with downs i i've had a few shows on that that they seem to have a little bit less of that filter because the stories are just wow with me they're so intuitive and um it's it's exciting exciting stuff i want to go back to um the research at university of virginia about past lives of children Mm -hmm. Sure. And I really wanted you to talk about um, not only them just remembering, but some of the physical aspects that they, the, right. the, the children come back with, if you will, and also remembering how they come back talking about future, future events.
1: Mm. Oh, I but, guess those uh, are the,
0: uh, ND, those are the children that have had NDEs. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But the children who remember past lives uh, sometimes have um, birthmarks or birth defects mm-hmm. that correspond to death wounds from the previous life. Uh, for example, he, uh, one per- child was born with um, stubs for fingers on one hand, um, and he remembered a life where he was a child in India who was feeding f- hay into a fodder chopping machine, and he got his hand stuck in that and it chopped off those fingers. Um, now, there's no embryological way you can have the four fingers missing from your hand. You know, you can have one or so, but four would be very, very unusual. And yet, this child was born this way, and it corresponded to the life of the child he remembered in India. And we have lots of cases like this. Uh, Ian Stevenson published a 2,000-page book called "Reincarnation in Biology," in which he described these cases with, of birthmarks and birth defects that correspond to death wounds with photographs of the the child and then um either photographs or in some cases autopsy reports from the previous person who, who had died that matched the child um I think so they're uh, yeah, yeah, hard, yeah. hard to explain
0: yeah very hard very hard to explain and in terms of the the children who have had near-death experiences and them re- or not remembering but seeing future events yeah
1: yeah uh this actually happens with adults too that sometimes they will have a life review that doesn't stop at the present time and it, and it continues on to the future um, and often uh, what they see in the future are uh tragedies or crises and they can be very distressing um, yeah, and sometimes they don't know what those future events are going to be one uh, one person i knew um he had a, he drowned as a teenager and had a, a a near-death experience and he had a life review and there were several events in that life review that he didn't recognize uh so he just kind of didn't make any, any anything out of that and then years later um what one was a be- of being at a funeral and he didn't know whose funeral it was and years later his mother passed away and he's standing at the at the funeral and realized this is what i saw in my near-death experience everyone was standing in this position that's that's what it was let me give you a, a very dramatic example. This is a fellow who uh, lived in England. He was uh, uh, living in London during the, the Blitz in World War II. He was a, he was a young child. Uh, so I think he was around five years old. He might have been a little older than that. Um, but he uh, was in the Blitz, and you know, the, the, the building was was crushed, and he had a near-death experience at that point. And he had a life review, which wasn't very long because he only lived five years, but then it went on to the future and he saw himself. He, he lived, he felt himself as an older man sitting in a comfortable chair. And there were two children playing on the ground in front of him, the floor in front of himself, a boy and a girl. And he heard his wife making dinner in the kitchen. And ahead of him was a large box that he didn't recognize. He didn't know what it was. Um. So he's just sort of, you know, filed that away and, and didn't know what to make of it. Um, and then decades later, when he was living in California, uh, he found himself in that very scene, sitting in his easy chair, with a son and daughter playing on the floor, his wife was in the kitchen making dinner. And he looks across the, the room, and there's a television set, which they didn't have in England when he was a little boy.
0: Wow. So what do you how do you think this near death experience wisdom if it was accepted by most how do you think it would change humanity?
1: Well, you know, if everybody accepts the lessons from near death experience that we're all in this together, we're all interconnected and that you can't hurt someone else without hurting yourself. That might go a long way towards eliminating some of the conflict and the turmoil in life, and the, and the you know interpersonal struggles we have. Um, it might make people a lot more compassionate, um, and I mean that would that would change everything about how we how we live, live our lives.
0: Right. In in an interview, did you freeze there for a second? Are you there? Yes. Oh great! Yes. I froze there for a second. Okay, I heard you talk in an interview about um, it was a pre- preliminary report about some college students and high school students yes. who actually studied DEs in school.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ken Ken Ring did did uh, several studies of college students who were taught a class in near death experiences, and he gave them attitude tests before the class and after the class, and then a year later. And he found that those who learned about near-death experiences expressed much more compassionate and altruistic attitudes after the class was over and that persisted a year later. Uh, Chuck Flynn at the Miami University of Ohio did the same thing and he found the same results. There was also a class done in in, uh, Montana that showed the same thing at Montana State. Uh, Someone did a study of nurses uh, who had taught a class in near-death experience. And she also found that they became much more compassionate And finally there was one high school class in Ohio where one of the teachers had a near-death experience and decided to teach a class in it. And she too measured their attitudes before and after and found that they became much more compassionate also. So it seems that even just learning about near-death experiences can change your attitudes at least for a while.
0: Right, right. So I'd like for you to um, take off your science hat for a minute Mm -hmm. and put on your grandpa hat. (laughs) <laughs> and I want you to put on your 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 three year old. Yeah. <laughs> Think of your little three year old. And if you could take a walk, or I'm sure you do, is it a is it a little boy or a little girl? A boy,
1: little boy. A
0: little boy. If you could take a walk with him, um, and he's just grieving, you know, after a beloved pet yeah. had passed or a loved one and just looking him in the eyes and and knowing what you know now, and I'm going to use the word no because I just have to. I feel it's right. what would you what would you say to him that that you think could comfort him?
1: Hmm. I wouldn't tell him uh, things because um, I don't think they generally respond to that. I would ask him things, you know. What do you think has happened to your cat, or to your dog, or to your friend? Where do you think they are now? You know, what do you think they're going through now? What do you think that feels like for them? And wh- why do you think that? Do you think there may be some other answers also? You know, I, I've talked to um, many patients who were grieving, or who were facing their own terminal illness, and they often want to know about near-death experiences. And again, I don't. I don't tell them what it's like. I, I ask them what they think is like, and right. I invite them to challenge their own thoughts, and think where well, there may be some other ways of looking at these things. Yeah. Um, and I would do that with my grandchildren. I do that with my children as well. Uh, you know, what do you think? Why do you think that? And but
0: what if you get the response back? But Grandpa, what do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, I would tell them frankly, I don't know. Yeah. This is what I think. But I don't know for sure.
0: Right, right. Beautiful. And what if you could take a walk with your five or six year old self? What would you say, knowing what you know now?
1: I would say, don't be so arrogant and think you know all the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: You don't look too arrogant to me.
1: You should have seen me fifty years ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Bruce, we need to wrap it up. but um thank you so much for today. Oh. and is there and I want to talk about, you know, this whole interview has been about um Dr. Grayson's book that just came back out. You can see it um on the back of his bookshelf, and I have it I have it right here too. I have read it in full twice, and I'm reading it again because, I just it just brings so much comfort to me, um, and it's called After. A doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. And I encourage my listeners just to be curious. and And this book is just beautiful, as is the documentary um, series on Netflix, Surviving Death. And you are on that, and they're just all very very um interesting inspiring mind opening and all of that but is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we before we go today
1: uh just that the reason I wrote this book was, was that I do believe that learning about a near death experience will help people lead more fulfilling and more uh, meaningful lives
0: mm-hmm. beautiful well, thank you so much. And if people want to find you, how would you um how would they do that?
1: Well, my website is www.brucegrayson.com, with com and that's Grayson with an E.
0: Great. Okay, Bruce, thank you so much. Give hugs to the, all those grandchildren. Sure. Thank you, Mala. It's <laughs> been a
1: pleasure talking with you.
0: You too. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.